love ELO? Of course you do. What kind of dim-witted jughead doesn't? Then listen to Face the Music, an Electric Light Orchestra song-by-song podcast. Every week, I, Eric Paul Johnson, and my co-host, Eric Winsenson, take a song by the Electric Light Orchestra, give the song facts, the history, discuss, tear apart, dig deep into the song itself, give our opinions, chart facts about the singles, and we even consult with the future of humanity on their opinion of the Electric Light Orchestra. So if you don't want to be a dim-witted jughead, then listen to Face the Music, an Electric Light Orchestra song-by-song podcast. Episodes post every Saturday at midnight Eastern Time and can be heard on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Mixcloud, TuneIn, and iHeart. That was stupid as a butthead. Hello and welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quibell, known to my friends as Marv, and this time I am speaking with Martin Ware, who is the presenter of the show Electronically Yours, as well as keyboard player for and one of the main songwriters for Heaven 17. Um, he's also, uh, before that, was a member and of... And backing vocalist. And backing vocalist, yes, and backing... Thank you. And uh, previously a member of, uh, of the Human League as well as that, and was also a member of uh, BEF. And he's done uh, a couple of incredible albums with Vince Clark under the name of the Clark and Were Experiment, amongst so many other things. Th- this guy is an innovator of surround sound technology, and it's incredible for me to be speaking with you. Thank you for, for this, Martin. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. So we'll go back to before all this. What was the inspiration for you as a musician to start with? Because really the show starts from your history as a musician. So what started you out on that that mission to be a musician? I rhymed there. <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't so much a mission. I mean, I'm from Sheffield and grew up in Sheffield till I was 21 years old. I uh, went to a, uh, when I was in my, in the fourth form, I think it was at school at King Edwards in Sheffield, um, a friend of mine, that's not true. It's just when I'd left school, actually, Paul Bauer, a friend of mine who was in a band called 2.3, said, you you know, I've got a bunch of mates who are at this thing called Meat Whistle, which was um, down in Sheffield City Centre. It was like a, 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 a kind of intellectual youth club yep. kind of thing, uh, for ostensibly for drama, but actually uh, all kinds of the arts. And it was run by two people called Clive. I met just about all my long-term friends there. Um, and it was a kind of safe space to mess about in for a couple of years creatively and you know we all fancied the idea of being rock stars and musicians and but never really thinking for a second that it could ever happen because we you know all the people we were going to see were yeah, banks and banks of equipment and you know we had no money at all there was just no way it was going to happen imaginary bands and we play for our friends there. There's only about 30 or 40 of us. 
And I look back on it now and think, actually, that was a necessary kind of, shall we say, uh, seasoning of the wok, uh, you know, before you can cook in it. And um, never, ever any intention that, that the general public would be interested in what we were doing, really. Um, and so consequently, when we started to make tiny baby steps into the real world, we, as uh, a Cabaret Voltaire 2.3, etc and it was like just a messing about we were uh, we were offered a support slot for a, a new this is when punk was just happening uh, for new um, a new punk band called the drones from Manchester and uh, you forget how quickly punk happened I mean it happened really from zero to 60 in about three months we were offered some friends of ours at the art college said would you like to do a support i said well we're not really a band but we'll have a go and we did support support them we were terrible of course um but the drones who were the headline act came on and they were even worse than us <laughs> and it, i think it was at that moment that we thought that um their little light bulb went on and went Whatever we do, yeah, I don't think we could be worse than that. Uh, and the other, the other big kind of um, light bulb moment was uh, in the NME around about that time. Brian Eno uh, had a two-page article, and he was, you know, heavily into all the ambient stuff at that time. Uh, it was quite on, you know, on the periphery of mainstream pop. And he said, essentially, he said, rock and roll is dead. Um, if you want to be in a band now, don't get a guitar, get a synthesizer, a tape recorder and a microphone. And that's yep. what we did. And that changed our lives. Wow. So then I'm guessing you went out and bought yourself uh, all that equipment, the synthesizers and the... Um... The drum machines, I mean, famously, you're the person who programs all of the drum patterns for the songs as well, using Lindrums back in the day. Do you still use the Lindrum? Uh, quite a few years there. So if you go back to the start of the Human League, it was really all we had. The important thing was, for the first time in our lives, we had some disposable income because both, yep. both myself and Ian at different companies were computer operators. And um, so we had a lot of spare time on our hands. We were, we were often working night shifts, so we had spare time during the day. And amazingly, this is pre... Can you imagine this? It was pre-credit cards. Yeah. Um, but everything was... Bought, you know, we could buy... They would allow us to buy things on HP, on higher purchase. Yeah. And so that's what we did. We went out and bought... Um, a, uh, I bought a, a Korg 700S from Musical Sounds on Abbeville Road. And uh, Ian um, bought a much more sophisticated machine called a Roland System 100, which was a modular wow. synthesizer, Yeah, which really was the workhorse for everything that we did in the, the early Human League. And I thought, where's he getting his money from? 
uh, you know, it seemed highly unlikely that he'd be able to afford it because it was quite expensive for the time. And it's only later on I, I, I found out that uh, Ian's family had, had won the pools. Wow. He never admitted it at the time. <laughs> and I, they weren't being profligate or anything, buying Rolls Royces. It wasn't, and also it wasn't like millions or anything, but it was a, it was a significant amount of money for them. And anyway, so it gave, the, it gave him the ability to buy this machine. And that, so we had a modular synth with a sequencer and we had a my monophonic synth. They were both monophonic and a tape recorder. Yep. And that's how we created Being Boiled. And Being Boiled was the really, uh, really a serious band with Addie Newton from now Clock DVA. Um, and it, that was more like weird kind of f- f- electronic film soundtracks with Addy kind of mumbling over the top of them, and uh, we took them uh, took the demo tapes down to London. We got a lot of appointments with record companies. Um, never been to London, can you imagine that? And we ended up getting twelve appointments with record companies, and um, they all said pretty much the same thing, which is you know you need to go away and write some real songs. Unfortunately, myself and Ian were into pop music yep. and rock music and, and kind of were musical and understood what was required. Uh, so Addy, um, we decided to move on from Addy and we, we were looking for a new lead singer. And that's when I brought in my mate from uh, school, Phil Oakey, Primarily because he got a, a, a nice hairdo, um, and we didn't—I didn't know whether he could sing or not at the time. And uh, so anyway, we did being boiled uh, in mono, bouncing from track to track on a tape recorder, and um, put it onto a cassette. And we, you know, we thought it sounded quite interesting. Yeah. Again, no uh, possible thought that anybody else would find it interesting apart from our mates. Uh, but my friend, again, my friend Paul Bauer, who had already got a single out on a on a small independent label called Fast Re- Records in Edinburgh, said, oh, can I send it up to Bob Last, who was the, uh, the guy who owned the label? And I said, well, are you sure? Do you think anybody would be interested in this? And so he did, and Bob loved it and said, we want to put it out. And that's how it all started. And then it got played on the John Peel show and uh, multiple times. And it sold, I think, 5,000 by word of mouth uh, in various, um, you know, in, um, the big record companies set up and take notice. Because, yep. like, John Peel was a tastemaker at the time and, you know, would ensure a, at least a basic uh, listenership for your records if you were to release them. And he was certainly an important uh, radio presenter, that's for sure, because I remember listening to John Peel, you know, as a, just somebody listening for new things, because I'm always interested in new music. So he was always the place to go to find out what was going on. That's right. Um, Just moving on to the question about the drum machine thing that you said, that really... uh, 
I mean, we programmed the rhythms, as I mentioned, on a sequencer on System 100. Um, but then, as soon as we, uh, I mean, fast forwarding quite a lot here, but, you know, when the split happened between the Human League and Heaven 17, one of the first things that happened was um, our A&R man, Simon Draper, a virgin, said, um, uh, there's this amazing new uh, machine that's come out, and he introduced us to it, the uh, Lindrum, the first Lindrum, LM1, and um, said, hardly anybody's used it yet. Do you think it might interest you? And, you know, we had a demo of it, and I said, we are buying this. It was quite expensive at the time. It was like a £1,000 or something. And um, it was the first thing that we bought with our... Uh, not huge advance from Virgin Records and um, that became part of the sound of Heaven um, 17 really and and early British Literary Foundation Yeah it was certainly important to a lot of music in the early early 80s for sure I mean it's, you can find Lindrum all over the place you listen to records from back then and you can hear that distinctive uh, Lindrum sound in there and it was uh, revolutionary to, to music for sure. And um, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it, it made actually programming drum, drum patterns a lot easier as well because it's relatively, in comparison to previous machines, it was very user friendly as well. Yeah, there was, um, there was a thing about the Lindrum which excited me which was not only was it one of the first, if I, the first drum machine that used real samples, albeit they were like 8-bit or they might have been 16-bit actually. But anyway, they were kind of slightly degraded, but you could tune each individual drum. And the other important thing is that on the back of the machine, each uh, sound had its own output. So when you went into a professional studio, you could really mould those sounds through the, through the mixing desk properly rather than it all going through a stereo out and everything has to be done inside the machine. So you could like compress the kick drums, you could fatten up everything. And if you listen to a lot of, um, say, Prince records from that period, the things he does with the Lindrum, very much part of his sound. Yeah, yeah. And I also loved the idea that um, you could do things with the, machine, with the Lindrum that uh, were close to physically impossible for a um, a real drummer, apart from if you're, you know, Omar Hakim or something, you know. Uh, in fact, several drummers came up to me in Sheffield and said, well, that Lindrum, you know, it's like, it's not realistic, you can't play like that. I said, well, you know, time to wake up, you know, because it's going to, Unfortunately, put put a lot of drummers out of work if you can't keep time. Yeah, but then eventually, I mean, you you, you found a lot of people who were using it to. Um, I mean, this is going off on a tangent on that subject, but you'd find people who would work in conjunction with with the Lindrum. So you'd have the Lindrum, and then drummers uh, emphasizing certain bits with real drums, and you had that sort of thing coming in, which which also changed the way that music has gone on to be to, to sound like really as well, because initially, like you said, I mean, drummers 
saw it as a uh, a problem. And then eventually some drummers, you know, like Phil Collins, um, even Stuart Copeland in his in his own music outside of the police and people like that would use it to um, to fill out the sound more, but then still still add their own drums to it. And it created a different sound completely to what had been before. Yeah, the the. I think the biggest change it, it, it caused was um, that drummers realised they, you know, they were no longer the only game in town. So um, even if it wasn't to do with combining with the Lindrum or any other drum machine, they realised that that the the drummers who were going to get session work, and in fact a lot of the time the drummers who were going to be getting live work um, at a at the top professional level, had to be able to play with a click. Had to. Um, didn't necessarily follow for all kind of more, more um, uh, kind of breathable uh, modes like soul and stuff like that. But it was clear this was the direction of travel, that pop music was moving in the direction of more regulated beat. So therefore, um, either uses a drum machine or a drummer who could sound a bit like a drum machine or at least could keep time to automatic elements. Absolutely. Hey, this is Brian with Concerts That Made Us podcast and you're listening to Pods Like Us, a great show about other great shows. So from from there, I mean, you know, you, I feel like I'm doing a disservice, really, like I'm almost rushing through all this and I don't really want to because it feels bad going past all this incredible history to get to the show. But, I mean, it's incredible how then in Evan 17, you then went on to work with, you know, with Evan 17 and BEF and, and that. You worked with so many incredible people like, you know, Tina Turner. I mean, the work that you did with Tina Turner absolutely turned her, her, her life around from where she'd been and suddenly she was back in the in the ether for everybody you know with let's stay together and songs like that and then you work with sandy shaw and um i mean this is going well well much further on than that but i've got to say that the album that you co-produced with um Sananda Matreya, he's calling himself now. For those listening, he's the artist formerly known as Terence Trent Darby. But introducing the 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 hardline, according to, is an incredible work. I mean, the work that you did as a producer is phenomenal. I'll just I'll just say that in passing and ask you if you've got any interesting stories <laughs> for these. Oh my God! Where do you you'd need a separate hour for the story to do? I know. That. But, um, um, well, let's deal with Tina first. So, um, a phenomenal talent. Uh, she didn't even have a record contract when we were working with her. She didn't have record company support particularly. Um, she actually at that point she had just signed to Capital, I think. But, you know, it was still a new relationship for her. Yeah. And she was um, out of fashion. You know, she was still earning a good living doing the chicken in a basket circuit in America yeah. and doing the odd European um, date. In fact, I went to see her and got the opportunity to talk to her about BEF. Yeah. And 
And uh, somebody just came into the office one day and James Brown just dropped out from doing uh, Ball of Confusion with 24 okay. hours notice. Wow. And um, I was gutted, as you are, as you do. And then somebody came and said, oh, I'm going over to um, LA. What about, do, do you think, are you interested in Tina Turner? And it was like one of those kind of... Light bulb moment. You can't believe, yeah. you, 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 I couldn't believe that it had just dropped, you know, it, it was fake, essentially. And anyway, next thing we know, a week later, we're on a plane to Los Angeles. Never been to America. Oh, sorry, never been to Los Angeles. Yeah. And, um, you know, car waiting for us at the airport, up into the Hollywood Hills to go and see Tina Turner in her ranch-style, you know. And we're there. We're, Glenn came with me, actually. Yeah. And um, I, I turned to Glenn and said, what, what are two lads from Sheffield doing here? You know, about to meet one of the world's greatest soul singers. You know, in our eyes, she was a superstar then, yeah. before the relaunch of her career, because of River Deep Mountain High and the stuff she did with Ike and Tina Turner, you yeah. And uh, because we're soul boys. You know, we we used to go to Northern Soul clubs, and and uh, I mean, we love electronic music and everything. But if you cut us in half, you know, we've got keep the faith in the middle. You know, uh, running like a through it in like a stick of rock. Um, so uh, just to meet her was amazing, and then we got on really well. She was a really nice person, and uh, we explained what we wanted to do. Um, about uh, recording a version of Ball of Confusion uh, for the BEF, Musical Quality and Distinction album. Yep. She, she said, oh, that's great. And then when she turned up at the studio in London, I'm cutting this short, but um, she said, where's the band? And I said, <laughs> I pointed at the Fairlight and said, it's there. And she went, wow. you know. Um, and since then, in her autobiography, she said she didn't know what the hell was going on. I mean... Yeah. This was Martian to her. Because um, she'd already had a kind of 25-year career of singing live with, you know, great soul uh, backing bands, etc. Uh, anyway, that uh, we released that as a single. That didn't get in the top 40, although it was really good, I think. And, um, but it meant that Roger Davis, who was managing her, um, came back to us when she was making her first, you know, comeback album private dancer and said would you write some you know would you consider writing a couple of songs for Tina and we said stupidly that we and I think it was lack of confidence actually but um, we and it's true though it was true though we didn't really write co-write with anybody and we'd feel a little bit it, you know we'd feel a bit uncomfortable about writing for Tina because it's like a, it's so on, you know, it's such a specific uh, thing to kind of try and compete with her talent, or not compete, but you know, compliment. And um, but we, I said, but how about if we do a couple of interesting, um, you know, interesting cover versions? So I got together a list of uh, top ten lists, which I, I wish I'd still got now. I can't. Okay. I, 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 yeah, I can't really remember a lot of them, but uh, number one on 
<coughs> on the list was uh, Let's Stay Together by Al Green, which I've always thought was a massively underrated song. Absolutely. And I could get, uh, in, my, in my mind's eye, I could, I could kind of understand how it could be approached. And, um, uh, and together with Greg Walsh, who helped me as well, who was producing Luxury Gap with us at the time. Yeah. And, um, and the other one, I think it was about number seven on the, on the list, was um, I like the idea that when the album was coming out, it was going to be 1984, because I've always loved that. Yep. And I loved Bowie's song, 1984, uh, from Diamond Dogs. And I said, why don't we do something that, that really, absolutely nails on the wall that she's a contemporary artist? And do, and I knew she loved Bowie. It all made sense to me. Yeah, um, So we did 1984 as well. And... Um, and uh, of course, the album went on to sell, to sell twenty million copies, which is great. Yes. And then I did loads of other. Obviously, I was hot property for a while. Then people were beating a path to my door. I thought I'd got the money, uh, and which were with various levels of success, mainly successful. And then um, fast forward a few years, um, I was just about to embark on another. Uh, project. I think it might have been wet, wet, wet. Actually, okay. I'm not signed a contract or anything, but anyway. Um, and then this, uh, I got this phone call from this kind of nervous 17 year old kid who was working as a trainee NR person at Sony uh, called Lincoln Elias. Uh, and um, he said, Martin, Martin, you've got to have a listen to this to this demo tape. We've just signed this artist called Terence Rendarby. And uh, and literally, I was due to go into wow. the studio in forty eight hours' time with, a, with another artist, and uh, and he sent me the tape, and I put it on, and I I listened to it, and I went, "This is yeah. just ridiculously good." He'd already moved on; he was writing new stuff. He sounded like kind of great Stevie Wonder uh, uh, outtakes. And um, I'm going, this guy can definitely sing. I hope he looks good. So anyway, I rang him up immediately yep. and said, can we have a meeting tomorrow? Uh, I turned up at the meeting and we got like a house on fire and we were in the studio within two weeks. And it took us about a month to make the album. And um, it was a marriage made in heaven. We, it was myself, Terence and... Um, a uh, very good friend of mine, engineer called Phil Legg, who'd already worked on quite a lot of big things yep. with Robbie Miller, the famous producer um, at, at Battery Studios in London. And um, so the th it was like a tight team of three and his band. And we just got down to it and um, we said, right, the, the condition I'll do this on is that we don't, we don't have any interference from the record label yep. at all until it's finished you know i want to create a sense of us, us against the world and it doesn't work if you have constant feedback going on throughout i know what i'm doing he knows what he's doing let's make it happen and so they put faith in me to do it and and us to do it and uh, i'm still i still think that album is the best album i've ever ever produced really maybe apart apart from I really like Luxury Gap and How Many Are, but I mean, in terms of third party, I think it's the best sounding album I, I ever produced.
And it still sounds yeah, kind of me, contemporary it sits alongside now. the the great soul albums to to me, you know, alongside you know like um, Isaac Hayes, like you said, Stevie Wonder, Inner Visions, uh, songs in the key of life. I mean, it's just it's it's an Thank amazing you. album, and from from the from the off, I first listened to it, and I'm I'm from the age where every time I buy an album and I bought it on vinyl back in the day, I used to tear open the uh, the sleeve and I'd read everything on there, you know, all the details. I was one of those who was looked at the minutia of who played this, who played that, who played the other. And from the off, that guy was on fire with his performance. I mean, for those listening, for those listening, oh, he doesn't oh just sing God. and he doesn't just play the odd bit and bob. This guy played everything. He could play the whole gamut of instruments and he was tipped up at the instruments from day one. He, he, he was an amazing artist to to watch live and to to listen to. It, amazing and such a great album. Yeah, great. Yeah. Great, great dancer as well. Studio every day and sit in the studio with the lights off and play his influences. Like, he, he was like a student learning you know, in class, he, his favorite things were Otis Redding live albums. Um, uh, but he would also listen to Sam Cooke. There's a famous Sam Cooke live album from around, around 1961. Massive fan of Prince, of course, but they actually Terence saw himself as a, 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 as a content. Well, he was a contemporary of Prince and saw himself in direct competition with Prince. He wanted to be, uh, you know, not the same as Prince, but he wanted to be as famous as Prince and as as uh, innovative as Prince. Well, he was definitely, he definitely had that innovative thing to him. Cause I mean, um, is it Symphony or Damn that he would make? Is that the album? I can't remember that. Yeah. When, when he did that album, that was yeah. innovative and everything that he did after that album always had that edge of I've done this let's see where I can go now he was always trying to move with his music he wasn't staying in one place constantly and that's something that I always admired about him every time I bought a new album by him as well that's right yeah you should um for the listeners you should go and listen to his latest yeah. work because he's still making great stuff as Sananda Maitreya um, it's on Spotify. Um, his last album is really interesting. I can't remember the name of it now. But uh, there's one particular track that's on that album and also on the yep. Avalanche's last album, uh, which is called We Will Always Love You. And the track is called uh, Reflecting Light. Have a listen to that track. It's, I, I can't, I literally, since I interviewed him on my, on my podcast, six months ago. I haven't been able to stop playing that track. I think it's one of the most beautiful vocal performances of the last decade. It's just incredible. And his voice is better than ever. Um, and now he releases albums to uh, just online really. And, uh, uh, and he, lives in, he lives in Milan with his wife and, and, two, and um, children. And He's, he's a much happier man now than he was when he was a big superstar. I've just taken note of that song. I'm going to 
I'm going to make up, I think I'm going to make up a Spotify playlist to go with this episode when I put it out and I'll put that on there. And um, if you want to pick one of his songs yeah. off that first album that jumps out at you, I'll include that on there as well, if you want. Yes. Um, I would like to pick... I would like to pick yes. Sign Your Name. And the reason for that is when we when we recorded that song, not only is it, it's got a beautiful video, by the way, but uh, when we recorded that song, it's the only song I've ever been involved with producing and arranging, where when we took it in to be mixed, where, right, the way I mix is, um, the first thing I do is I put all the, fa- all, all, all the different tracks up, all, all the faders up and just see what it generally sounds like. Then you start sculpting it into shape. So just put all the faders up on the desk. It's, of course, recorded on tape at this point. Played it. And it just sounded amazing, right? I mean, it's like, you know, it's like back in the day, uh, before I was a producer, people used to arrange things and properly rehearse yeah. things before they went into the studio. And and there, so there were very few surprises. It was just about how passionate the performance was or how perfect it was. And this was like this. It was so, even though I say so myself, I wasn't solely responsible, but it was predominantly, the whole arrangement was pretty much my idea. Um, the, the, the way that it, the way that everything slotted together required hardly any kind of uh, adjustment and tweaking. It was more or less just balancing the track and uh, maybe one reverb that you could put on a few things. And it just mixed itself. Honestly, it was it was like a moment of, of, um, of, of musical existential magic. Yeah, and there's you a know, beautiful use of space in the song as well, where there's, it's not it's not really busy either as well. So where you've got the effects uh, like the, like the reverb and that this space for that reverb to fit nicely without it some songs when you put reverb on it, it can make them sound mushy because there's too much going on there with the reverb added to it but because of the space that there is in the instrumentation and the arrangement mm. it's it works beautifully with with those effects added to it there was uh, another technique that I used on this, which I was very proud of, um, and you'll probably need, to, if it's on the Spotify list, you should listen for it. So I had this idea. Yeah. I've always loved real strings, right, and, and orchestras, and I've recorded quite a lot of them. Uh, but I thought, I had this idea that we could start the first half of the song with, with um, synthetic yeah. strings, with synth strings, and then imperceptibly blend them with real strings later in the song so that it would make people feel a kind of sense of familiarity as it went through. Uh, and it was quite a kind of, I suppose, esoteric idea, but it really, really works. So if you listen, when it goes to the middle eight, where it goes, but never look into the sun before the day has come. Under there is yep. where the real strings start coming in. And then the verse after that, to, and and the rest of the song, is all a real string octet. So uh, and the synth strings have gone. So 
at Keeple Academy. Well, by then, I mean, you'd had plenty of experience with that because you'd already integrated, um, we're going well back again now, but but you'd already started integrating strings into songs like Temptation and and that with Heaven 17 back then, and then you'd use them with Tina as well. So, I mean, you know, by yeah. the time you got to working with, with Terence, yeah. Sananda, you'd already were used to it. So it's almost like a second nature where you'd know, I'm guessing you'd know, you'd already have in your head before even arranging it, you'd or even writing it all down, you'd already got in your head how you're going to fit in the the real string section and how you were going to do this movement from yeah. one to the other, this transition. Yeah. So hey, this is Tim for Bad Counsel. You want some good counsel? Keep listening to the smooth, dulcet tones of Marv on Pods Like Us. <laughs> I have to say a couple of things at this point. One is okay. uh, I can't read or write music. Uh, secondly, uh, which I, I think should be an inspiration for any, any students or musicians who feel a bit kind of self-conscious about the fact they can't do that. Um, no. It's never hindered me in my career at all. So, But I know how to translate my ideas for an arranger. Uh, well... At first, I didn't because you're busking it. But then, after after a few iterations of working with big orchestras, you you quickly pick up the way it all works. So there's a there's me. There's an arranger. The arranger conducts the orchestra, reads the dots, makes sure the dots are right for all the players, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so there's that. Um, and I, the biggest thrill in the recording world is recording in an orchestra, bar none. There's no competition. It's the most exciting thing. If you ever get a chance to witness a live, uh, a live recording in a studio, just do it. You know, however big the orchestra, it doesn't make any difference. Um, and so, um, that also taught me. There's a reason why orchestras are orchestras, right? It's because those tonalities fit together perfectly in various combinations. And that taught me a lot about how to construct sound electronically. So it's a feedback, a positive feedback loop, virtuous yep. feedback. I mean, I'm, I'm not doing a comparison thing here, but, you know, I mean, I, I have a memory myself of when I had to, I had to write a, a piece. Uh, I did a piece for a uh, string quartet, and that was one of the most incredible things ever, to hear somebody sudden, hear those instruments playing something that you've come up with is just... It's it's an incredible moment to hear something like that. It's amazing. It's um, it's thrilling because what happens is you may well have come up with the melodies and may, maybe even written some instructions for it. it needs to be loud here, it needs to be quiet here, etc., uh, etc. Et but there isn't. I mean, these people can can. Can ex can put can extrude emotion yeah. from the simplest of melodies, and simplest of arrangements. They can make it sound like, you know, oh my God, it sounds you know it sounds like Brahms or something, or you know, or Bach, and uh, that is something. I mean, I did. I'm lucky. I did some. Um, I did some soundscape work uh, and compositional yeah. work for the Royal Ballet. Um, they, uh, they they have this tradition at the Royal Opera House when there's a world premiere, 
they get the composer yep. up on stage at the end of the performance. And the tradition is the audience, if they like it, throw roses, red roses, right? And I'm there on stage, be brought on stage at the end at the Royal Opera House, yeah. a lad from Sheffield, right? And these roses being chucked onto the stage, and they're going afterwards. They're saying, you know, your work will be archived forever with all the first, uh, all, all the original um, first nights uh, of things like Stravinsky's Rite of Spring and. And, uh, you know, loads and loads of Puccini and Verdi and, and I'm going, you know, I've made, I mean, that's like one of the highlights of my life, you know. And I, I'm not, I'm not just impressed because it's like the, the place, of course, that was impressive, but it's the idea that, that you might, that your work might be considered worthy of being in that archive. Absolutely. It's just uh, humbling. So I'm looking at all these enormous notes that I've got here. It's incredible the things that you that you've that you've done. I mean, not only the music, but sort of along well, sort of alongside the music. I mean, the the work that you've done with um, the auditorium for three D surround sound at the National Centre for Popular Music in Sheffield, uh, and then you you're one of the instigators of what is it? The Everything You Can Imagine Is Real. Uh, exhibition at the U at the UK National Portrait yeah. Gallery, which you were inspired by uh, Picasso for that one. Yeah, we were, I was approached by the National Portrait Gallery to see if I'd want to do a late night event to do with the Picasso portraits uh, exhibition they got on there, and. Um, I'm fascinated with Picasso. He's not my favourite artist, but I, you know, he opened a lot of doors for a lot of people. So um, I opened my dress book and got a lot of famous, well, famous and not so famous, but but really good artists involved. Asked them to pick a portrait from the portrait gallery, and and to write a piece of music or a soundscape or whatever they want to do, around, uh, inspired by that piece. And in the different galleries they selected, we put a 3D soundscape and we play in 3D and immerse people in it. Uh, we also had, um, we also had, uh, you know, DJs um, where I had, um, Picasso yep. also uh, wrote poetry. And uh, I, got, I persuaded my friend, uh, Graham Fellows, you know, John Shuttleworth, to uh, read some of, uh, Picasso's uh, surrealist poetry, uh, and and so we filmed him doing that, and that was on the wall as you as you came in. That was funny, it was great actually. Um, and then, so it was like a one. Uh, it was like um, I curated basically a one day journey because there was originally an artist colony yep. colony in Montmartre which Picasso was part of, where where the Surrealist movement started. And, uh, you know, everybody was sleeping with everybody else's girlfriends, and it was quite edgy, you know, the whole thing. And uh, and I thought, we can not... I'm saying everybody who came to our, our exhibition slept with each other. I'm saying that it was an exciting idea, this idea of reconstructing this theory for one day. And, you know, 7,000 people turned like it's free 
and um, absolutely. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's um, it's an immersive experience, really. It's because it covers everything, like like you said. So you've got you've got the pictures there, you've got the music, you've got the. Uh, I mean that that bit there with the John Shuttle with Graham Fellows. That's 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 brilliant, but it's an immersive experience, and it's just <laughs> an incredible thing that you've done there, you know, and it's just amazing. Like I said, the things that you've done, like the, um, what was that experiment in Brighton? The, the noise abatement experiment. What was that all about? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That was really good. So with the noise abatement society, <laughs> which is ironic in itself, uh, and the, yep. and the bright and Brighton council, uh, for anybody who knows Brighton, um, there's a long street that leads down from the railway station down to the seafront called West Street. And down by the actual seafront, there's, there's the road that goes across the, you know, where the beach is and everything. Um, at that junction, there's uh, about three. They have an enormous problem on Friday and Saturday nights because it's chaos. I mean, they're like all the people, you know, they, they have a lot of hen and stag parties coming into town. Uh, they have uh, all the people from Brighton. They're all out on the Raz. A lot of them are drunk. A lot of them are on Class A drugs. And they all converge on this one junction because it's where the entrance to all these 10,000 yep. capacity nightclub in total is. And they said every week they have like four... Uh, they have four uh, police bands with dogs, and they have a, you know multiple arrests, people uh, fighting, glassing each other, all sorts of chaos. And um, so I said, well, you and they said, do you fancy doing a soundscape, installing some equipment and creating an immersive soundscape yeah. to try and calm these people down? And I said, all right, we'll do it, but. Uh, First of all, I need to do a recce and see it for myself. So I went down there and it was like a war zone. It was cr crazy, random stuff happening everywhere. Police, you know, truncheons, I, I mean, the lot. It was, I said, look, I'll do it. And it was due to do it a month after that. I said, I'll do it, provided you provide a, uh, an, an, a kind of armoured porter yeah. cabin with fences around it. And because uh, I'm, I, what I'm going to be doing is basically DJing soundscape live. I'm not going to stand out in the open. It's not like, uh, you know, it's not like some uh, big style DJ. This is the calm yeah. stuff. So they don't need to see me. I don't want them to know in advance what's happening. So um, we did it. Yeah. And we started at eight in the evening and... It was busier than normal because right. it was um, it, it was Halloween, so everybody's in costume as well. It's even more crazy. By midnight, the police came to us and said, "We are redeploying all, all the police to other places in the city because there's no prospect of any trouble here." There were no arrests. There were there were no injuries. Everybody was having a good time. Uh, it was. A massive success, and in fact, we've been contacted by various other um, police forces to see if it might be something we could do for 
other trouble uh, spots. I mean, even you know, towns that you yep. wouldn't believe would have trouble, like Windsor on a weekend, for instance. Uh, you know, like posh towns. It's not just like working class towns. Um, so anyway, yeah, it made a success. And in fact, it's still, uh, there was an academic paper written on it. And in fact, the University of Sussex uh, videoed it for, uh, well, live streamed it at the time, but there's a, uh, they videoed it as well um, as an example uh, to, to analyze the behavior, behavioral aspects of people. And uh, as part of the supporting documentation for it being a case study to present around the world for using sound to uh, to positively enhance people's experiences in cities. Yeah, to, 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 to us who listen to music a lot, it makes sense, though, doesn't it? Because I know that, you know, a lot of softer, calming music calms me down personally and... And yeah. so I would have thought that that would be the way to go anyway. I mean, it sounds incredible that, and especially the fact that it worked so well as well is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it, it was not just okay. ambient music, calming music. We did things like we did a version of a new version of being boiled where we started at uh, quite a fast tempo and imperceptibly slowed it down throughout the song until it kind of ground to a halt at the end to try and, to try and see if that would slow people's heart rates down. Uh, we also took, uh, did another experiment, which was we looked at the number one record in the dance charts at the time, which was Beyonce's Countdown. Mm. Uh, which is a weird song, by the way, uh, but I really like it. And um, I said, I know what we can do here. Let's take the song and slow it down to half speed right. and keep it at the same pitch and see if people recognise it. And before we know it, the people were filming it, they are filming. They were like, after about 10 or 15 seconds of the intro, they, they recognised where it was. And they start slow jamming to it, right? Like bumping and grinding and stuff, like it's some kind of game. So what I think is that um, yep. people want to feel considered. And I don't think it's just music, by the way. I think it's like things like in a footballing, in, in a football audience environment, if you are treated like, like, uh, if you are considered, you know, you, you have good food, you, your seats are uh, got good sight lines, uh, you're treated in an, in, a, in an adult way, then you'll behave like adults. And the inverse is true, right? I saw, we saw that at Hillsborough, yeah. my home team, Sheffield Wednesday. So, um, and I believe that if people, and this is a theme, a thread that has run through all the compositions I've done with Illustrious, not all of them, but most of them, is this idea of a kind of uh, humanism. Uh, is this thing that you, you want to feel, you, you do it with the intention that the people are being considered who's listening to it. I don't just mean pop music here, I'm talking about if we're doing things like, I don't know, a soundscape with, um, with um, oral history read over the top or anything. It's about giving people the sense that, you know, 
I am involved in this in some way, and it's for me. And uh, that's part of my socialist beliefs. So that's, that's that's where you go. That's where I okay, go. With so, it. <laughs> what's up, everybody? This is Chris from the podcast Real Film Reviewed, and you're listening to Marv on Pods Like Us. Now, now, now we'll get into the show. So, how how did you go from all this to then? starting the show is the show uh, electronically yours is it an outcome of the of the covid coming coming into being right. and the and the lockdown that we were done or had you already started coming up with the idea of doing the show right so here's yep. what happened during covid um i decided to um to save my sanity i would walk like between five and ten miles a day during that time i became engaged with the world of podcasts um, a few of the podcasts that I really like, um, Adam Buxton, uh, Atletico Mince, um, uh, Mark Maron uh, was a big influence. Um, this kind of naked honesty, talking to the audience as though that you know you're in the room with them, rather than you know I'm presenting, you know. Um, and things like that. And I suddenly, uh, at some point, I thought, oh, maybe I could do this. Yeah. You know, I, I do a lot of lecturing anyway. And I, I, I'm not uh, shy about speaking on, on, on anything. <laughs> I'll turn up at the opening of an envelope, you know. So, and I've got lots of friends in the music industry. And I thought, yeah. you know, and I've kept on good terms with most of them. And I thought it's a good excuse to reconnect with a lot of um, artists that I kind of, you know, as you yeah. do, you can't keep in contact with everybody all the time. Uh, it's a good excuse to do that. And also, during lockdown, I decided to write my autobiography, um, which um, took, you know, six months, perhaps. Okay. And it's about to come out in August this year. Um, and that's called Electronically Yours, Volume 1, which goes from birth to... 93 basically and then volume two should the first one be popular would be the rest and um i thought uh, the thing that, that that kind of tipped the balance was i thought if i do a podcast i can use it as a kind of trailer uh, and to raise my profile a bit in anticipation of the you know of the uh, of that of the yep. autobiography and of course um i did it and it's kind of got a life of its own it's kind of grown up and left home now you know it's like i can't it's an unstoppable truck uh, it, 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 it is just great you know it's got so i've created a patreon site for it we're getting sponsors it's just turned into a, a really i'm very proud of it actually because i think it's it's um it's a repository of kind of Yep. oral history of a moment in time for the for the electronic music scene but creativity in general and uh you know these are how it's very rare that people get the chance to talk for an hour yeah about their lives and their creativity it's really rare and you know i'm doing this obviously because i feel like it's a payback thing so um but you know for instance yes. recently i had yep. steve coogan on there he was, uh, I've met a few times before and he kindly agreed to do it. I don't think he's ever done an, hour, an hour's interview no. in his life about anything. You know, he's never done anything like this. 
really hard to get really hard to get him to do anything he normally is too busy for a start um and then there's people like you know all-time heroes of mine like tony visconti i mean if if like if those two things were the only two things that had happened that came out of this that would have been worth it for me you know tony visconti produced 12 of my top 20 favorite albums um you know, and then it's people like Gary Newman, okay. who I'd never met, ever. It's incredible. So the first time wow. we ever spoke to each other wow. was on the Zoom, doing the, doing the podcast. And he, he still, to this day, is the most popular episode. That, that there's uh, Actually, that's not true. Glenn's episode is more popular now. Uh, but for a very long time, it was the most popular well, episode. Uh, so just so many people, I can't really, you know, I'm just grateful to them all for opening their... For, you know what? The other thing is, uh, I've never... Nobody, yep. apart from Sananda, and that was only because I called him Terence Bikeson a couple of times, nobody has ever turned around to me and say, oh, can you edit this bit out? Can you do? Can you edit this? Yep. Can Can I have approval? None. Everybody's been generous and trust me, and uh, that makes. I've only a ever difference. had that happen once to myself, uh, but I, w- I won't go into that one. But um, I, w- I will say that um, your show. I mean, I've, I've been talking because I'm I'm part of a part of a group on Instagram, and we we chat with each other quite a lot. And so um, yeah. I know that I was talking with Mike, who does an album, does a podcast called My Classic Album. And then Jason Barnard, who does uh, Strange Brew podcast, that's been going for about 11 years now, I think that has. And we were all saying that, you know, there's something wow. about your show that the interesting thing is that because of the how you're coming at it, you're, so you're from the industry itself, you get out of people a, uh, there's a calmness to, the, yeah. to, your, to your guest and there's an openness that you wouldn't find in a formal interview situation and that's what makes it a fascinating show to listen to and for us personally we were all saying that that's what gives it that something special it takes it to that and and some of the fun bits of it are like when you were talking to glenn and when you've talking to spoken to uh, to paul paul bauer as well because you've had paul on as well and these people that you've worked with before these little anecdotes yeah. and this sort of closeness that there is between you that you wouldn't get in a normal situation because it's it's almost as if you being part of that and having that shared history with most of these people gives it something completely different and original. Yeah. Thank you. That's really the intention. I mean, there are people, also people that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just eternally grateful that the podcast process has allowed me to meet like Rasheen Murphy for instance who I think is an absolute diamond uh, and we will remain friends now forever uh, because of the podcast and um, okay I've still never met her in the flesh I was meant to go to one of her shows in London and um, I was ill unfortunately and I couldn't make it and uh, so I will I will meet her in the flesh soon but we got on like the house on fire and you know so many people i'm so happy to get an insight into their world you know and i think the fact that i'm enthusiastic 
and I know what I'm talking about, and they have a degree of respect for what I've done. I mean, people like, for instance, tomorrow there's, there's, um, uh, uh, I did an interview with, yeah. Oh, you get anyway. You get a community thing uh, with uh, people yeah. suggesting guests as well, which is great because they're in the they're in the industry. They know you're in the industry, and you often have mutual connections. So anyway, um, one one of the listeners suggested and gave me contact details for um, wow. Doctor Fink, who's the keyboard player wow. from Prince yes. and the Revolution. You know, the guy who wore the scrubs and. So I would never have met him, you know, uh, in any, how would I ever do? But thanks to my uh, listeners, they put me in touch with him and, uh, and he's on the show tomorrow and he goes through the entire history of, of his work, yeah. not just his work, but Prince really. And he's kind of emerging from kind of niche artist to like, you know, he was there for all those great albums. My favorite is- Same uh, here. Silent That's Times. my favorite. Uh, that's like, yeah, that, that's his greatest album, yeah. Uh, but like all those all those great albums that he did, and you know the film and two films and all that stuff. He was like a right hand man for him. So that's what to listen to. Yeah. But things like that no, would never no. have happened. Would never have happened without without the community that's built up around. But yeah, around I mean, I mean, not to think you've got him from. The late, I think he joined Prince in the late seventies, or and they, they lasted for probably 10, 10, 11, 12 years as yeah, part, yeah. Of, part of the main group. And yeah. that body of work, yeah, is basically an, an incredible body of work. Amazing, and I don't think it will be equaled by by anybody really. That, yeah. Hey, it's the boys from Sauce Spoken, and we are so glad that you are listening to our new friend, Marv, and his podcast, Pods Like Us. Yeah, we were recently on the show for a couple of episodes, and we really enjoyed it. And if you'd like to catch a little bit more of us with all the raunchiness and sauce-based humor that you're used to, feel free to check us out on our show. But in the meantime, keep enjoying Pods Like Us with Marv. We enjoyed talking with Marv as much as we hope you enjoy listening to him. Now back to the show. So... How do you go about recording and then editing the show together? I mean, do you do editing at all, or do you just let it go out as is? Uh, no, I no, I I am uh, employing my um, engineer, assistant, co-producer, whatever you want to call him, um, Charles Stook, um, who sounds like some kind of seventeenth-century uh, London diarist, I think. But anyway. Uh, he's a young lad and he's really good. Um, yep. I mean, to be honest, I could do it myself, uh, but it's just time consuming. So I just, uh, and he also helps me out by doing the interstitial music. Uh, and we're going to put out a, pod, um, a, um, a, a Spotify playlist of some of the interstitial music oh, as well over the hundred episodes that we've done. Uh, another thing that's happening as well is. Um, we've been asked to create an, ex, uh, an immersive exhibition okay. based around the podcast, which is probably going to happen in the autumn in a new museum in Frankfurt called the Museum of wow. Modern Electronic Music, MoMA. And um, that sh- that's going to be really interesting, I think. That's, that's, yeah. So it's going to turn into a, an that, immersive that's incredible, experience. That, that, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> With I mean, what more? What more perfect place could it be? I mean, you know, you've got like you're going over to where, where it all started with craft work. 
essentially, you know, it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's amazing. Exactly. And um, yeah. I, I also like the bit with the with the music as well. Where we're at the end, you, you'll 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 come out with one of your one of your synths as well from your collection. I mean, it's such admiration for the for the synths in, that you've got in your collection. I mean, how, how the heck do you fit all those synths yeah. in that house, in that in that apartment that you're in? <laughs> Well, uh, firstly, I only have two synths left, which are the original okay. two synths I mentioned earlier. Uh, the rest is uh, virtual synths now. So um, I do ask people what their favourite synths are. And the amazing thing is, out of, what, 90-odd episodes, um, I think there's probably 75 different synths being mentioned, which is incredible. just shows you... What a characterful thing synthesizers are, and how people identify with certain functionalities. I know it sounds, it sounds a bit kind of uh, over and analytical, but I think it's just fascinating. And not everybody's going, yeah, I love the mini Moog, or you know. I I um I regret now I haven't got it anymore, but I used to love the the Juno uh, Juno one hundred six. I used to have that's a, that's a gorgeous synth, that was, and uh, yeah. And of course you've got the classics like the DX seven and. And then, uh, oh, what did they have in, uh, when I recorded last in a studio, they had this uh, this incredible synth. I mean, we're going off on a tangent again. But they had this incredible synth that was, uh, I think it's called a Moog Voyager. <laughs> I think it's called. And, yeah, I think it's called Voyager. a Moog Voyager or Voyager. something like that. But it's got all of the, um, built into it, it's got all of the classic Moog sounds into it. So you've got all these, you've got the mini Moog sound, you've got the, all these different sounds in there to be able to select. And it was just amazing. I mean, I, I, I didn't get off that thing for, for hours and hours. I just kept playing and it's just incredible. It took my breath away that you could have this like thing where back in the day, I'd have to have lots and lots of different types of moves to get this sound. It's just amazing that all that is compared to how we started with since it's where it is now. Where, I mean, you've got the sounds on your computer, for crying out loud. Yeah. <laughs> you can plug a keyboard into your computer, and you've got that yeah. there. It's it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. No. It's never the same, though. Uh, I can honestly say I'm I'm sponsored by um, several people, but Arturia, Roland uh, are the main two. Um, Analog solutions as well, um, teenage engineering, and um, the software synths never sound as good. They have other benefits. Um, they uh, they have other benefits, but it's not about the actual. Uh, you know, the 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 nature of the sound yeah. is never quite as good as what they're trying to portray. Yeah, yeah, it's it's usable. But it's just not as. I good. mean, I, I, I find that when I've used uh, when I've used onboard on software uh, options, um, even now that I've not really played the the one hundred six in all these years, I know that when I play it with when I play it in a studio with a basically just a bass keyboard, bass unit there controller, it's not the same because the oscillation feels different and absolutely you know the, the all the everything's completely different in how you do it. So when you try to emphasize parts, 
it feels you, you have to sort of like almost change the way that you do it because it doesn't it doesn't move the same when you use software as it does when you use the actual original keyboard itself. Yeah, it's not just that though. It's the actual uh, oscillators. <clears throat> um, the digital versions of them are cannot be as good. It's like um, digital cinema compared to analog. You know, to seventy-two millimeter projection. That if you broke that down into pixels, it's like beyond the most high res. That can be possibly streamed. Uh, it's just it, it, it's if you break it down to a molecular level, yeah. it's steppy stuff, and and they use uh, dithering algorithms to smooth it all out. But it never no. sounds the same, especially at the bottom end. I mean, there, I tell you what, there was a there was an interesting thing. There was an interesting thing with um, I came across a video. I don't know. How I came across it um, of. Um, of the Gap Band, who I loved, uh, right? And um, you dropped a bomb on me, I think it was. And uh, and uh, early in the morning, which I did a cover version of, actually, with Richard Derbyshire from Living in a Box. And there was, on this video, I never knew what what the synth, what the bass synth was that they used. I assumed it was a Moog or something. And on this, for the first time on the video, it showed it was. I think it was an Oberheim. Pro something, quite a rare machine. I looked it up. And the difference is not just the quality of the oscillators and the filters, but he had this special um, controller where you yep. could slur between notes and it yep. was pressure sensitive as well. Thank you. Of course. You know, uh, and so they also like you know small things but you imagine playing you imagine playing a uh, a violin and yes. uh, you you couldn't use vibrato it would sound like, yeah. like actually that's shit. what i was thinking was the i was thinking that the the switch that you use that that actually you do that with so you've got on a key on a lot of old synths you've got this here that will change the the pitch of what you're playing so it will change the notes slightly it's all it's like yeah. if you play a guitar and yeah. you bend the string on the guitar it changes that note ever so slightly it's like yeah. a yeah. like a trill a bend, when you're singing yeah. like a trill when you're singing yeah, so you'll trill yeah. between that note between those two notes yeah. and it's the same thing but you can't do yeah. that with a yeah. with a exactly. with onboard equipment no yeah of course software to the same degree well you can but it's never no. quite you can be never quite right yeah so how do you arrange the guests that you have for your show? Um, it's been a very organic process to start off with. I mean, I, I basically source all the guests and contact them directly. That's pretty much how I've worked with uh, my stuff that I've done with BEF, for instance, throughout my career, yeah. is uh, I've discovered that if you uh, go with an open attitude to, to people... Uh, ask them directly what you want. Don't waste the time and just say, you know, the worst that can happen is they say no. It's not the end of the world. It's true. So I go always try and get direct to people. I prefer not uh, to work through their publicist or their management or whatever because that's just adding an extra layer that I don't need. They might need it. I don't know, but um, I suspect they don't really. They're just 
you know, it's just like slows things down. So I try and get a direct contact to them and ask them directly what I want and tell them it's not going to take very long. And it's, you know, people generally are, are, um, are quite accepting of that and uh, are interested in the idea of it. And I think because I'm an artist myself and have been through the kind of publicity process um for 40 years and I know what it's about they know I'm not going to mess you know I'm not going to mess about with them I'm not trying to dig into their private life for any prurient reason you know it's um it's it's more a genuine interest in what they've got to offer um and I mean some people have turned me down some people are incredibly hard to uh, to um to to nail down uh, and you know that's the way it works. You're just going to take the rough with the smooth. But generally, people are are, are very accommodating. Absolutely. I mean, would you say that your guest in general would be like that with anybody, or would you say that because you're in the industry, it makes it a lot easier, and that you have a rapport with these people? I think it makes it a lot easier because they know. I mean, most of the people I talk to have got some idea of you know my career and who I am and what I've done and um some people actually you know like the work that I've done some people even if it's not their thing they pre they, you know they they respect the fact that I've uh survived for 40 years in the business yes and uh, some people are friends you know uh, who I know anyway and that's how the whole thing started was I you know I would go for the low hanging fruit first the people that I know very well who i i would be very surprised if they turned me down as you go further along and now we're moving on to nearly 100 episodes it's getting more and more difficult because i'm having to um go further afield and and i actually interview a lot of people who i've not got a close connection with so uh but whose work i respect i wouldn't i wouldn't take anybody on just because they're famous um I mean, like, for instance, today, recently I put a, a call out on my, um, you know, uh, to, to, the pe- to the listeners and to the, and to the Patreon uh, subscribers to say, you know, if you know, if you know of any contacts um, and you know how to contact them, who you think might be appropriate for the, for the podcast, then um, let me know. Just let me know. It's, it's that simple. And I will do the rest. And so using that, recently, uh, in fact, today, I'm just in contact with Lloyd Cole, for instance, who, amazingly, I mean, I really respect his songwriting and and what have you, but amazingly, I didn't realise, he just sent me an email today saying, I'm a bit of a fan of the stuff right back from being boiled, and in the last 10 years, I've got heavily into synths. And I didn't know this. And he showed me, he sent me a photo of his studio and he's like, it's got more going on than I have, you know, wow. and who'd have guessed that, you know, <laughs> yes. well, yeah. that really wasn't his thing back in the day. So all sorts of unexpected things come about. Um, I'm going to be interviewing Brian Hodgson, who is the original creator of, uh, or co-creator of the Doctor Who theme tune and uh, from the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. And that's an amazing thing that came through uh, recently. And then, 
Yeah, there's all sorts of people. There's uh, who else am I interviewing? Yeah, there's a kind of randomness to it, uh, and you know, some people really detest the idea that they're not pure electronic musicians. That I'm, or only uh, the idea of the original premise that I set up. It just happens to be called electronically yours, but um, I said I was going to be. You know, interviewing uh, creators from all fields. You know. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, the re the recent, the most recent episode of yours, I really enjoyed that with um, with Doctor Fink, Matt Fink. I thought that was incredible. <laughs> and you you've you've changed you changed up the uh, the actual structure essentially of the show there as well by adding that bit at the end now of the episodes where you you do listener feedback yeah. now as well yeah. and. You had the you had the call out for for them to suggest guests and possibly put you in touch with guests as well, which I think is a is an interesting change yeah. up. Yeah, uh, well, it, it's it's based around the fact we've got two uh, we we've got two hours worth of uh, a backlog of emails that I was reading out, and um, I thought I'd best start adding a quarter of an hour to the end of every episode to catch up. Um, but you know, I, I think the the fact that it's more like. Um, a kind of community now is good and uh, i want to encourage that because you know as a socialist i believe that community is everything you yeah. hi this is katie of bad council with some good counsel you should keep listening to marv at pods like us <laughs> and, and out of interest I've had, I've had some feedback from a couple of fellow podcasters who've said that They've had you as a guest before on their shows, and they said how uh, how accommodating you were to them, and how how good a guest you were. By the way, I thought I'd just mention it. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. Whoever they are. I was just searching. I couldn't couldn't find who they were, but uh, yes, they they'd mentioned <laughs> when I posted about it. They they responded and said said that. So, do do you just um, generally? chat with your guest or do you have an actual structure to the conversation that you have right so the way it works is that i do my research from whatever source i can find normally the uh, their own website or their own sometimes their publicists send me stuff yeah. uh and wikipedia kind of fills in the gaps normally not entirely reliable as you know but um you know what can you do i haven't got all day and um uh, and so I do that, and I do it on. In fact, I'll show you. I, and this is no good for podcast listeners. Yes, uh, but you'll be able, you'll be able to see it at least. So I do a a page basically like this for everyone. Yep. Can you see that? Okay. Uh, which is like handwritten notes, which are fairly random, and I kind of uh, make a, a, a highlight certain areas. Because what I want to do, I don't want to do it like a boring um, kind of interview, which is too structured. You know, it's not, I'm not Mike Park, Michael Parkinson. I'm not. I don't want to be Russell Harty either. It's. I want the the conversation to flow in a natural way, and and so I dodge around the timeline of their careers, and sometimes I don't even mention everything. I try to cover most things, but um, so. The more organic and the more natural the flow of conversation is, the better it is for me. And then I have the smash it thing at the end. 
I have the smash hits thing at the end, you know, with, uh, where I ask the stupid questions. Yeah. Yep. So um, I was going to say something there, and I forgot what I was going to say. Oh yes, I was going to respond to the the Russell Arty comment and say, well, if you ever had uh, Grace Jones on, you wouldn't want to hit in you. You'd rather her speak to you without the yeah. uh, without the punch, maybe. I don't. I don't mind. I'd take some punching if she agreed. If she'd agree to be on the podcast, I'm just an, an enormous fan of hers. I, I have actually tried to contact her, but I heard. Uh, via via a uh, podcast listener uh, who knows her and uh, apparently she had some bereavement in close friend or something and so she'd gone off uh, kind of out of public the public eye for, for a while um so i'm going to try again though because i think well we're born on the same day for a start wow uh, that's quite good and um i'm just saying i'm an, I'm an enormous fan of hers yeah, especially the work that she did with Trevor, Trevor Horn. That that's that's iconic. That yeah. music, I think, yeah. brilliant. Absolutely. So, so, going into the work that you do as a teacher, um, are there any things that you would suggest to people? You know about songwriting in general and things to look for. I mean, as as somebody who's dabbled in writing myself. I'd say that there isn't one set formula that you can use constantly all the time for writing, but there are other things that people should look out for when writing. Yeah, I'm going to actually just open a document, um, which is one second, which um, is um, I, I do a presentation called um, "How to uh, Things uh, Top Songwriting Tips." And I'm trying to find it. Hold on one second. I'll uh, speak amongst yourselves. Oh, where the hell is it? Uh, I've got ways to make money from music. Is that any, is that any good to you? <laughs> no. That would be uh, useful. No, this, 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 yeah, well, I know, yeah. I wish I could guarantee it for my students, but it's not that easy, I'm afraid. All right, uh, tips. Hold on one second. I'll ju just be a sec. I mean, I would always say that if you're thinking of writing, in a, in a sense, write something that's that interests you first of all, that you find fun, and then from there, the creativity would come a lot easier than than forcing something that you're not actually interested in, should we say? Yeah, I um, I found it by the way. It's just coming up now. I'm going after really kind of. Um, scan through this because it's, it's, it's like an hour-long presentation but these are my top 30 songwriting tips and in the presentation i would give examples of it so number one is try to emotionally engage the listener i think this is the most critical one actually um so talk about things that they might be interested in don't just talk generically all the time and as an example of that i would give uh prince sign of the times as a great example of that you know, it's it's uh, current affairs, but in a way that people might actually talk to each other about it. Um, and then there's things like structure. Oh, you're getting... I've never done this before online, so you're getting a, a real first here. Uh, structure, you know, don't just go for the basic, you know, eight 16-bar sections and, you know, the boring stuff. Yeah. Um, look at something like Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, which was... 
you know, really an unusual structure, almost like episodic, really, as an example of um, how taking a different approach can really help. And then there's things like story and evocative narrative, uh, which kind of relates to the to the first point, but uh, an example of that is Bobby Womack across 110th Street, which I think wow. is just that's a, great. That's a fantastic, amazing. that's one of my favourites. I love that song. Yeah, brilliant. Um, hooks, of course, very important. And one of the things I always say to people is that um, sounds can be hooks as well. You know, if you look at, um, you know, Johnny Marr, for instance, and you know what would what what would the Smiths have been without his guitar playing and his hooks? Yeah, it's but, like, so the yeah. example I give for this, anyway, is go on. I was going to say I was going to suggest uh, hook his uh, bass lines as well in New Order songs as well. Yeah, they're a hook in themselves. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. It's got the right name for it, but I mean that's that's a perfect example of <laughs> you know of that as well. Yeah. And then this, the example I give for sounds can be hooks too. A very um, clear example is um, if you know the track Sky Saw by Eno. Yeah. From yeah. Another Green World, I think it is. Yeah. Um, it, that's all kind of instrumental hooks, him and I think Fripp's on it as well. I'm not sure. Uh, protest and Passion. We don't need that fascist groove thing obviously you can write songs that are uh, about something you believe in something you're passionate about orchestration let me go let's get a example of that cultural references famous names events brands etc so the example i gave of that was marvin gaze abraham martin and john you know what a great song that is uh one verse each for different heroes from uh from um his past uh, impressionism, surrealism, and irony—very important. You know, you can go way off beam. I mean, if you look at something like MacArthur Park, for instance, that's a good example. You know, I, when I first listened to that tune, I loved it, but I didn't know what the lyrics. I didn't really understand it when I was young, but now I understand it. Of course, it's just um, amazing use of metaphor, really. Um, Repetition. We all love repetition, don't we? I feel love. That's a good one. Uh, Harmonic structure and key changes. That's gone out of fashion. I was just discussing with my uh, engineer today, because he's a songwriter as well, and I said, key changes, you know, who does key changes anymore? They've gone out of fashion, but they're still interesting. So I'm just going to cut to the end of this, because there's so so much stuff, but... Uh, just say fine, the final four slides, these. So musical influences from around the world uh, are very important, so open your mind. Do the unexpected. Make a whole integrated artistic world for your songs to live in. You know, Bowie's the perfect example of that. Yeah. And finally, and most importantly, fight, fight laziness, be resilient and be an artist. So there you go. Yep. I mean, the, the looking at things from the other world, I mean, I like to... In mine, I've used instruments from different areas of the world. So I might mix up, um, I mean, I've got, um, you can't see it, but I've got a tambura over there that I use. And uh, right. 
and then I've got I can't remember I've got I've got um, Japanese instrument as well that's like a stringed instrument that, that's bowed as well and I like the idea of cross pollinating to to give music a different feel as well and that it, people won't expect that sometimes as well you know if you're doing doing music I think that's plus it's interesting as well to go into those areas just just for me personally. Well, ironically, um, the electronic music in particular has been kind of corralled by white people, largely. Um, and uh, historically speaking, when uh, from the kind of 60s and 70s onwards, electronic music has been, uh, has been created and released all around the world. And I think... Uh, we need to acknowledge that fact, and we need to. Uh, it, it makes the whole scene more interesting, and not just focus on uh, us as a little island uh, uh, and or, or Europe and America. Just Europe and America have kind of commandeered that kind of world, and uh, I think we need to look further than that. I love the band um, Yellow Magic Orchestra. They're, they're Japanese. They're, they're an incredible electronic band. Who had the uh, Rai, Rai Sakamoto yeah. in, in in them, and they're incredible. That's right. That's right. Like you said, there's there's yeah. a, you know people that do electronic music that are from other places in the world, and people need to you know just keep keep your your mind open to listening to something that you've never heard before keep, keep your ears open so yeah i mean for instance for instance i um recently interviewed a um a guy called chris liebing who's a a, a german uh, techno um guy you may know yeah. him he's on mute um really sweet guy his music is very, very, very German techno. I mean, it's like exactly what you'd expect. And, you know, I, there, there's an analogy, you know, for instance, his stuff is very kind of monocultural and white. And um, But <clears throat> if you look at things like the early Chicago house pioneers, a lot of the electronic music and the synth playing was played in by hand there were it was it was a lot of it, it was before midi you yeah. know and so that kind of organic feel was an entirely different thing to what we ended up with as kind of standard house music now um so i anyway i'm always pleading for people to to listen to the polyrhythmic stuff of of kind of african music and southeast asian music uh incredible stuff that you can draw inspiration from um and not just, you know, just everything having to be quantized and, you know, bang on the beat and everything. I just find it a bit boring after a while, all that stuff. Hey, it's Gil from The Mindbird. Today's Mind Culture and Social Podcast. And you're listening to Pods Like Us. That, that's that's why you know I mean um, if I listen to uh, Jean Michel Jarre, I prefer the earlier stuff like Equinox, and I mean I like his later stuff as well, but I prefer I prefer the the early stuff like the Equinox and the Oxygen, where 
he'd recorded them on a four track. And I remember him saying, because um, he did a series with, uh, with, with Matt Berry of podcast and they were talking about it. And uh, Jean-Michel mm. was saying how the music that he was creating for those two albums, it was, it was done in such a thing where he could hear the, the, uh, the sound of the, the tape when he was recording. So he was recording according to the yeah. speed of the tape and how the tape was going right. basically yeah. made, that's why the music was that way. And he was playing that music in there and then on the dot because you couldn't do it any other way back then with a, with a four track tape recorder, you exactly. couldn't. So you just did it as it was. And exactly. so you've got all these little bits in there that, are accidents, but nice, beautiful accidents that he's got in there that are just little yeah, bits of, of notes and, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Mistakes sometimes, you know. I mean, I'm not I, I'm not a very good keyboard player. Um, uh, and, you know, sometimes, I mean... Bum notes, obviously, get rid of those. But, but you know, sometimes you'd move to the wrong key, or you know, and sometimes oh, I should quite, I quite like that. And then I think back to like um, the my band Human League, and everything was played in on four track. You know, everything. I mean, manually, there was no synchronization, nothing. So, we did have one sequencer, the System One Hundred, which is there. Oh yes, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And um, I still use it. In fact, I've just done. I've just filmed a podcast series. It's going to be released soon. Called the art of the art of uh, analog modular synth production and subtractive synthesis. So that's going to be a series that'll be coming out as soon as it's edited and put together. Yep. Yeah. This is me taking note of that. The art of analog. I'll, I'll hear it when I listen back to edit the episode as well. Yeah. Because um, there aren't many people I mean, talking about subtractive. No, no. And as as a, as a tangent to the side of me, I'm actually going through a four track tape recorder now that I use as my um, as my audio interface. Because I, oh, right. I, okay. okay. I still record using I still record using four track. Interesting, interesting. I, I, I like the sound of tape, basically. Me too, me too. Yeah, there are tape simulators, but they're not quite. I don't know. They they they, they kind of work, but it's not the same. It's it's a weird thought, you know. A a digital. Um, software option creating an analog feel in in a sense it's it's not quite not the same at all no, no it's not it's not so as, as an interesting side side thing if you um you, you know when you approach your production for other group for other artists um how do you approach it? Do you approach it differently mm -hmm. each time? I mean, what would you say is an important aspect to a producer when they approach uh, a new artist? Well, firstly, firstly, what the record company wants you to do 
is to is to make a record which is going to make them loads of money, right? So, yeah. um, the amount the amount of trust they put in me as a producer, um, is commensurate with the amount of previous success I've had. So when I was starting out and uh, I not had much success, then of course they don't trust you quite as much. As soon as you've had Tina Turner or Tangerine Derby or Erasure or whatever. They trust you a lot, or they used to, but they don't anymore because they they don't want to spend the money on it. But um, so consequently, I normally say first of all, stay out of my way, and that's to any anybody in the record can they're allowed to hear it at the end of the process. Yeah, uh, uh, but not until we've done it, and then they can suggest improvements or not. You know, um, and uh, secondly. Analyze what the artistic intention is of the artist. Uh, you know, for a lot of record companies nowadays, they sign up an artist because they see they're talented. Yeah. And then they just they just ignore what they want and they just try and mould them into some predetermined commercial shape. And that was air quotes, by the way. Yeah. And um, and I don't think that's the right way to go about. <clears throat> and they, in other words, they don't really trust the artist. Yeah. To to express themselves, and what you end up with is the artist is so desperate to please normally that they will they will lose sight of who they are and just end up doing stuff that sounds like everybody else. So my job as a producer is to kind of be the buffer between the record company and protect the artist and encourage them to be as creative as possible. Uh, I can ensure that technically they're as good as they can be and I can mix stuff really well and arrange it really well with them. But really the the thing that sells a, a production is, is the quality of the songwriting and also the, you know, the performance essentially of the lead singer and to a lesser extent the musicians that are involved because a lot of time they do it in the box nowadays anyway. So... Um, if people come to me, they come to me for my expertise in getting the best, in squeezing the most juice out of an artist. But to do that, it, it involves creating a, a kind of us against the world mentality with them. For me, uh, this is how it works. Do, do you prefer working? I mean, going going back to in the in what you just said with it in the box. I mean, do you prefer that, or I mean, would would you always prefer to have? a full group of musicians there to provide their own uh, human um, feel. Well, what what I used to do, and my preferred methodology, uh, throughout the 80s, really, and, uh, and the 90s, was uh, normally to um, take the original songs and I go away, do some programming. Yeah. Um, and... So what I was creating is like a hybrid of, of a programmed world and a live world because I thought each complemented the other. And that's, you know, what we did with Terence, for instance. It's what we did with Te um, Tina Turner. It's, you know, we used um, more or less half and half of live musicians and programming. Of yeah. course, that means that the, the uh, musicians have to be able to play to a click or other drummer does anyway. Um, and so that we can edit and, and program things properly. Um, 
which does pin you down a bit. I mean, you can just do it freestyle and uh, then do a tempo map afterwards and program that way. And that, that can work. And sometimes that can sound very exciting. In fact, I'm just reimagining some, I think I mentioned it in the first half, some Billy McKenzie tracks from yeah. Sulk. And uh, what we're doing is we're taking the original multi-track, basically, digitised, and we've created a tempo map from the original drumming, which was really kind of shifting around a lot. And um, and actually programming uh, uh, to that and quantizing to this new tempo map is proving to... is I, I did actually say to my assistant, Chaz, I said, because I've replaced the bass line with a, a, a kind of funky bass line because it was quite a funky original bass line, but it was all so fast you couldn't really hear it. So I've turned it, and I said, God, this... Because it's got that push and pull and the breathing, you know, the tempo tempo flexibility. I said, this this sounds like some early Chicago house shit. Yeah. You know, and I can imagine this with Billy McKenzie's voice over the top. I'm doing skipping at the moment, yeah. uh, the track, which I really like. I've always loved that song. And um, I'm going to be doing uh, Club Country as well. And um, a couple of others, yeah, with uh, Steve and Emma from uh, um, who used to be in, in the band actually, and um, the orchestrator. Right. Yeah. So, what advice would you give to people if they wanted to start a podcast of their own? Ah. Um. Well, do you know what? It's dead simple. I think. I don't think there's much to it. I think people make a lot of fuss about it. When I first started, yeah, and I first I thought I'm going to do this. So I, I spoke to a friend of mine who runs a, 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 a radio production and podcast company, and said, you know, can you give me some tips? I, you know, I don't want to. There's no point in reinventing the wheel. It's just. You know, and they went through all this stuff and everything, and now I'm like a year over a year in, I'm going. I didn't really need that advice. It was all fairly just common sense, really. But you've got one thing that I I, I know is that there are certain things you've got to do properly. One is try and connect with the audience on a personal level before you launch into the podcast. Yeah. Uh, there are people have different uh, techniques. I always have. You know musical transitions between the different sections, uh, but I, you know, I'm different to most people in as much as I don't edit the interviews that I do unless it's absolutely necessary for, you know, coughing or something like that. I just leave it as natural as possible. I explain to people this is going to be the case as well when I talk to the guests. I say, look, I don't want to edit any of this stuff out, even if you have to go to the toilet like you just did, or a dog walks in, or you know, or, you know, you get interrupted by a man on the street. I don't care, provided the sound quality is audible. It doesn't have to be perfect. That's another yep. thing I've learned, I believe. Uh, sometimes I had to, you know, for logistical reasons, um, you can't always make it perfect, you know, so sound quality-wise. Uh, for instance, when I did... Um, I interviewed Martin Fry, and it was in his house in Barbados, I think it was. Yeah. 
and the internet was just appalling. It kept cutting out. We tried to mitigate against it to a certain extent, but you know, you just, people will just accept the rough with the smooth. You know, it's not a. You know, I'm not trying to win any Grammys for technical excellence. I'm not no. bothered. You know, it's about the content. Always about the content. So. Um, I try and keep it as good as possible. I've even sometimes had to, for various reasons, uh, record uh, with a microphone directly off a laptop. So I just use Zoom, and I just yeah, the Zoom fortunately captures the uh, the stuff as yeah, uh, separate feeds from the two of two or three or four people. Yep. So that's all I need, you know. And we we you know we engineer it so that we we reduce the amount of noise and we try and make it sound as listenable as possible. But really. It's basic stuff. And, uh, you know, some people contact me and they go, you know, Zencaster. And I've done that in the past. Yep. And I, I just won't do it because it's too much faff for me. <laughs> you know, I'm not part I'm not part of making your podcast or your podcast or whoever's. You know, when I ask people to appear on my podcast, I want to be able to say to them, you don't have to do anything. You just turn up. At this time, it's an hour long. Let me worry about everything else. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And so, anybody who says, "Right, you've got to re- you've got to download this app and you've got to record it on your machine and then you've got to send it to me," not, no, fuck off, I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a tip for people who want to make it, you know, make it as easy as possible for your guests. That's my that's my view on it. And I think I think it's a really important thing, more than it appears to be, because the higher up the tree you get, the less time people have, yep. and the, and if they think there's anything that's going to make that that, if you give them an excuse to turn you down, they'll probably turn you down. Yeah. So you just got to take all the barriers away. I'm Agent Scott, and I'm Cam the Provocateur, and we're from the Spy Hards Movie Podcast. That's right, and you are listening to Pods Like Us, the podcast that has a license to thrill. Well, earlier on, I actually recorded a, an episode earlier on with uh, with somebody, and that person, they they don't like the formal question and answer. That um, they really hate the formal question and answer structure to to a lot of shows. So basically, all I did there was I just had the recording going and we just talked and over that that conversation, as opposed to just asking him, Oh, you know, how did blah, blah, blah. And how did this, that, and the other, it just naturally during the conversation, those things came out in the, in the, in the chat anyway. Exactly. Exactly. It's the exact opposite of when journalists send me a bunch of questions on email and I'm going, no, I'm not doing that either. You know, phone me up and we can have a chat. And then it's up to you to transcribe it. It feels alive then. Yeah. Uh, it's different for a podcast because you're actually hearing the original voice. But, you know, it, it translates into journalism, everything. You know, this kind of everything has to be in a neat kind of OCD compartment is bollocks, I think. I think um, it's it's probably the, the, the formal question and answer um way that that a lot of journalists use is why in a lot of you know a lot of established artists like you know that the famous one would be Paul McCartney who comes out with the same stories quite a lot I 
think that comes from the formal ask this question, that question, and this question. Uh, whereas those what those conversate those chats where they have actually a chat as opposed to a formal question and answer, you get more interesting uh, responses that way, like with your show, because yours is just a conversation and a discussion. You get these, you get these little bits of of gold in the conversation, and it. it feels it sound it's better as well because they're comfortable and they're coming up with things where they've never come yeah. up with these stories before. I mean, um, well, let me tell you, yeah. let me tell you a story. Okay. So back in the eighties, and it probably is the same now, it might be even worse. Um, when we released an album, because we used to we used to be popular in a lot of different territories, yeah, and. Uh, of course, we were never gonna. We didn't tour either, so you know it was important that we did interviews in every territory, and the the one that we dreaded most was always, uh, well, it's it's Australia Day, right? So yeah. there would literally be an interview every twenty minutes for about six hours uh, on phone interviews. This is before yeah. the internet, so. And all that happens is that the PR department at Virgin just send them a one sheet of, you know, briefing them about the album and and literally telling them the questions to ask or, or suggesting. Yeah. And, and I'd yeah. say 90% of them asked exactly the same questions to the extent that one, uh, when we were publicising How Men Are, I think it was, we said we got halfway through the day. Me and Glenn looked at each other. And said, I don't think we can deal with this anymore. Why don't we say to the journalists that we'll interview each other, and then you'll get an exciting piece with some interesting insights, and you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is transcribe it. So we did, and yeah. we did that for about six or seven interviews, and every interview was different because we knew each other. So that's what inspired my approach to these to my podcast is I believe in the organic nature of human communication. I think, you know, having nothing more boring than just having, you know, a series of questions which are not based in any kind of human empathy. So that's, that's why I do. Well, first of all, in passing, that reminds me of, um, I heard about, um, there's the, so back in the 1960s, um, this uh, a little there's a vinyl record or a tape that used to be sent to some radio stations across America apparently to do with the Beatles, and all these were basically an interviewer asking the Beatles questions, and this was all recorded for them, and then that was sent to radio stations, and all that happened then was the radio DJ replaced or. <laughs> Put, they'd ask the questions themselves that were asked on the record or the recording, and then they replayed, then they played the Beatles' responses. So all of the radio stations across America had the same interview, essentially, with the interviewer, the DJ, replacing that person's voice. Yeah, I mean, that's boring, I agree. Yeah. However, in America... What you're talking about is a gazillion local radio stations across America. And so nobody would have known from that location that the same thing was happening somewhere else with a different interviewer. So I can kind of understand it in America, but when you're dealing with, oh, I don't know, it, it just got it gets very boring as an artist. 
practised if you're not careful. So you have to keep it fresh. And I think the same is, right, podcasting is all about understanding your audience and understanding why they like, why they're going to devote hours of their life to listening to your podcast. You know, if it's boring, I wouldn't want to do it. I mean, I know which podcasts I like, and they're the ones that are the most engaging towards the audience. You know, it's not just delivering entertainment. The ones I dislike most are the most produced ones, actually. Okay. You know, it's like... It's like they have like background music throughout it all, and it's like, it's almost like a, it's like a, it's like a section on Woman's Hour or something, or or some, you know, or Radio Four, and it just, I hate all that stuff. I think it's so old-fashioned and so boring. Um, you know, I mean, for instance, if I was um, speaking to, and we don't see each other anymore now. And he's gone off a bit off the rails, but John Lydon's an old friend of mine. Yep. And, uh, you know, I used to think when I was talking to him, and and, and, and his guard was down a bit, right? Yep. And he wasn't doing the, he wasn't being Johnny, Johnny Rotten, that we had some of the most interesting, most creative and most exciting conversations that I've ever had. Because it was like being, a, it was like two people that had, it was so passionate about music and so passionate about creativity in general that you just go down these paths of uh, that was that, that that were you were never going to hear on the radio never yeah. i mean i did i mentioned the other day i think the steve coogan one i did recently i'd like to bet he's never done an hour long conversational interview like that in his life absolutely for publicity and it's because it wasn't for publicity that he did it. I've had some artists come to me recently and go, oh, can we delay? Uh, I want to do it, but can we delay it until we've got, you know, our album coming out in four months' time? It's not a promotional tool. You can, If you insist, we can do it. But I don't care if you've got anything to promote. If you want to put a five-minute advert on the end, go for it. But that's not what this is about. You know, it's about you and your yes. life. And if all that your life boils down to is the current thing you've got to sell, I think that's sad. It is. Before we go to the next bit, I'll say uh, number one. I think John. Uh, I think John Lydon is very over, 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 overlooked uh, a lot, and a lot of the stuff that he's done with Public Image Limited is incredibly um experimental and has you know a lot of worth to it i, I, lo- I love a lot of what he's done with with that i agree i agree completely i was i was big friends with john mcgeoch as well yep. um and um i mean they were just brilliant anyway you know sorry I'll just get some water this is b nicole from buried on the tundra and you're listening to pods like us I was also going to say I loved when you had Glenn on the show as well. I thought that was really <laughs> open and a cracking conversation to listen into. It's almost like I'm peeking into a uh, private conversation between you and Glenn, essentially, where you where you're remembering anecdotes about things that you know have have happened. Well, forty years of of doing interviews like 
So really, we make it sound like it just occurred to us, but in fact, it was quite, you know, we know what we're doing. But Glenn, actually, Glenn's episode is the most popular one out of all the nearly 100 episodes. Wow. If you ever get Phil on, I think that'll be mm. a popular one as well. I love Phil, and uh, but he's just um, very hard to get hold of. So what podcast do you actually listen to yourself that, you know, that really stand out to you? Um, I like Atletico Mints with Bob Mortimer and um, Andy, what they call him? I can't remember his name. Um, we started out as a football podcast, but it's more of a comedy podcast in general now. Um, uh, Mark Maron, um, the American comedian, who has put out about 1,200 episodes so far. Wow. Which is ridiculous. That's consistency. Um, just finding that amount of guests is, is hard work, you know. Um, who else do I like? I like uh, Adam Buxton. Yeah. The, the Adam Buxton podcast. That's yeah. really good. It is. Uh, the, he didn't put them out as often as I'd like, though. I mean, it's all a bit patchy. Um, just that, actually, I have a look on my phone because I've got my library right here. Um, one second, and um, oh, the Blind Boy post- podcast is fantastic. I yeah. love that. I mean, that's a kind of template for me um, about. I've got. I have a real paradigm, but kind of uh, a kind of guiding principle, which is never uh, patronise your audience. You know, I believe, I honestly, in my heart of hearts, believe that's how you should approach these things. I think it's really important. So this idea of, you know, somebody has more knowledge than you, therefore the superior is a load of bollocks for a long time. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and Blind Boy is very much like that. It's about his, his shtick is very much about intelligently mapping interesting subjects uh, for the listeners and always involving the listeners in the, in the kind of process. I really liked, um, I like Grounded with Louis Theroux. That's good. Yeah. That's finished now though. I was just like a, uh, lockdown thing. I like, uh, although it goes on a bit, but uh, uh, Late Night with Seth Meyers. I'm a big fan of American comedy, so. Um, uh, the Alexis Sale podcast, well, that's gone a bit off the boil recently. Um, uh, what else? Uh, I I love the In Bed with uh, Nick and Megan. Um, Nick Hoffman, Hoffman and Megan L- Mullally, yeah. um, you know Nick from um, yeah, that was so funny, and it, I think it's finished now. But uh, that was hilarious. So yeah, comedy has kept me going through the um, really through the lockdown. Uh, I, I fell out of love with music for a bit just because I was so miserable, uh, and I didn't want it. Actually, I didn't want it to pollute my love of music. So yeah. I thought I'd just give it a rest for a bit, use it as a creative thing and just focus on the spoken word for a bit. And that's why I fell in love with podcasts, really. So there you go. That's, that's They're my favourites. That's great. So how can people get in touch with you and find the show? 
Right, good. Um, well, it's dead easy. So uh, you can email me on electronicallymartin, that's martin with a Y, at gmail.com. Um, you can uh, download or listen to my podcast on any podcast platform, really, all the major ones, anyway, uh, Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. You can also uh, subscribe to my Patreon site, which is Electronically Ours, on Patreon it's called, um, where there are exclusive episodes that you can't hear um, on, on the normal podcast. Um, but I, I'm always interested to hear people's opinions, good, bad. I just chuck the bad ones in the bin, so uh, knock yourself out. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for speaking with me, Martin. This was this was great. Oh, no, it's, been an absolute, it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, let me know when it comes out, yeah? I will do, absolutely. Anyway, you can contact us at podslikeus at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter just by looking for podslikeus. And we are available on any streaming platform like Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it, we're probably on there. Anyway, thank you very much for listening and hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us. Bye.